Search me, O oh God.
Congregation, our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ through the communion of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us continue in our worship this afternoon by singing together from Psalter number 85. Psalter 85, and we sing all the stanzas. This afternoon, we turn to three passages of the New Testament. First, to Romans chapter 2, then 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and then finally 1 Timothy chapter 4. So read them in that order. First, Romans chapter 2, Romans 2, we read verses 12 through 16, and 1 Corinthians 8, and then 1, or 1 Timothy 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, of course, in the earlier chapters of Romans, he has shown how that we are all guilty, and here he's in the middle of the, or he's in the section which shows the righteous judgment of God against both the Jews and the Gentiles. And he says, For as many as have sinned without law, referring to the Gentiles, will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. In the day when God will judge the seekers of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Then we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and we read that whole chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and we're reading all these passages in relation to the conscience and how the conscience functions in our lives. We read Paul writes to the Corinthians now concerning things offered to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge pops up but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him in one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge however, there is not in everyone that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat, are we the better, nor if we do not eat, are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if some, anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But then you thus sin against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And then turning lastly to 1 Timothy chapter 4, reading, reading the first five verses. Again, Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with Thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So far, the reading of the infallible word of God. We confess our faith this afternoon with the words of the Apostles' Creed and ask that you join me in making such confession, not only with your lips, but from your heart, saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us sing in response from Psalter number 355. 355, and we sing all the stanzas. There's one matter that we will pray for as well with Thanksgiving. I didn't make it into the bulletin, but our brother and sister, Welton and Addie Cottenberg, celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary this past Tuesday. So we'll thank the Lord for his blessings to them. Let's come before God in prayer. Oh Lord, our God and our Father, we come into your holy presence in this afternoon hour. We're thankful to you, O oh Lord, for this day. Not only is it a beautiful day in creation, but it's a beautiful day in redemption as well. We know, O Lord, that you display something of your power, your glory, your majesty in creation. As we experience the brightness of the shining sun, as we see the world so much alive in which the flowers are, are blooming, the crops are growing, and in all these things we see your hand, that you have sent rain, that you have sent sunshine, 
and that you give the life to the world. And we pray, Lord, that you will continue to bless us in this way, continuing to provide rain in timely, uh, on a, in timely way so that the crops would continue to flourish and to grow and to produce. Lord, we're also reminded something of your majesty as we behold uh, the mountains and it shows something of your glory. We know that creation itself is to give glory and praise to you and even as the, the trees in their splendor point upwards towards you, we as your creatures also here are called to utter our praises to you as our God. And we thank you, O Lord, for all that you have done and continue to do in, in creating, sustaining, and, and preserving the, the universe. We see your hand in it, and in spite of all the, the fears of men, in spite of all the threats that are upon this earth, we know that you are the one who holds the world in your hand. And therefore, we do not fear what the future may hold. We do not live in constant fear and, and, and doubt and concern about our continued existence here, knowing that we will live not one moment longer than you have ordained. But we know that there's nothing that shall befall us without your hand in it. And we thank you, O Lord, for that comfort that we may know that you are our Heavenly Father, the creator of heaven and earth, and providentially all things are in your hand. But in spite of the glory and the beauty of creation and your providence, we, we also know that your work in redemption is all the more glorious. We've even heard of it this morning, and it, and it over, overwhelms our minds and our hearts as we think that Jesus, as the Son of God, did suffer and die for sinners. And we see, O oh Lord, something of, your, we see something of your purposes in it. We see what you have intended by it, that your people, that a people would be gathered from every tongue, nation, and tribe to worship you, to praise you, exalt you as God alone, the one only true God. There are no other gods besides you. We've read that from the scriptures a moment ago. There, there are no other gods. And while men might have gods in their own imaginations, we, we know that there is only one true God. And there is only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have revealed him to us so fully and clearly in the scriptures so that we have sufficient knowledge that would compel us to believe in him, to, to trust him, and to rest in him with all of our heart and soul and mind. Lord, that is such a wonderful work that you've accomplished. Lord, as we think of our lives, we realize that you have given us blessings. Many of us have experienced, O oh Lord, blessings in this time of the year. We were able to take some time and go away for some rest and, uh, from our daily labors. We're thankful that we live in a time and an age when we are able to do so. Oh Lord, bless those times for our family's well-being, for the relationships that we may have with each other and and also, O oh Lord, for, for the sake of our spiritual refreshment and revival. Lord, bless the word to us that we would never take a vacation from, from considering the, the, the scriptures and from considering the promises of the gospel so rich and free. That we would always, O oh Lord, be continually grounded in the truths of your word. Bless the word of God to us also this afternoon as we reflect upon this topic of the conscience and how the scriptures speak of it. And we pray, Lord, that you'll apply it richly to us, that we would have a soft and a, and a tender conscience so that we would resist and flee from every appearance of evil and that we would live before you holy, that we would serve you with all our hearts and souls and minds. Lord, help us and, and work with your spirit in our lives that we might more and more have a, have, have a sensitive conscience to, 
to the truth of the gospel and that we would live for your glory. Oh Lord, we pray that none of us would have our conscience seared, but that we would be ones who, who actively seek you in heart and mind and soul. Lord, we come to you also with thanksgiving that our brother and sister uh, Kuttenberg Wautenati could celebrate a 50th wedding anniversary. We see your hand in this, that you have guide, guided them and directed them through the years, through many years of um, uh, first of being married and raising their children and then um, being involved in, in teaching at, at various schools and, and then blessing them in their retirement. And we pray that you continue to be with them. And that as family members visit um, through these next, this next while and even into the next year, we, we pray, Lord, that you will bless their family relationships and that they would all be mindful of your faithfulness to them through the generations and also to their children and children's children, that they would serve you, the living God, that your covenant would continue to the thousand generations. Lord, we pray that you'll bless all of our marriages, that we would continue to be faithful to one another as husbands and wives, and that we would live with each other in, in all um, tenderness and, and kindness and compassion for each other. Lord, we pray that you will keep us from, from uh, challenges and difficulties in our marriage that would cause to the breakdown of any of our marriages. Lord, that we would be relating to each other as the, as the church relates to Christ. And as Christ relates to the church, that we'd be faithful in our marriages too. And that we would, on many occasions, be able to thank you for your covenant mercies to us. Lord, be with our children and our young people as they, as they uh, have finished their school year. And now we'll have a time of break in which they might work or rest. We, we pray that you keep them safe and, and that they would also use their summer uh, time to, for their edification and for their, for their uh, growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, prepare our hearts also every week to hear your word. Lord, we pray for our world. We look around us and we see so much devastation, destruction, hopelessness, helplessness. We see so many, O oh Lord, that are living in, in ways which not only are, are sinful, but in ways which are promoting those things which are sinful. We have just realized that even more vividly in the recent months. And we pray, O oh gracious God, that you would intervene and that your truth would, would reign and that there would be no longer any, any uh, abuse against uh, children and, and young people and, and that they would be able to live in, in the way that, that you have called them to live in all faithfulness to you and that they would be... Um, fully convinced in, in their own hearts and lives of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you will keep our young people and children from being confused in this day and age when there, there's so much uh, being promoted and, and propagated and the devil is so active and seeking to destroy families. He, he started with our marriages and, and now he's continuing with uh, the relationship that parents have to their children and and children's view of themselves. And we pray, Lord, that you will destroy the works of the devil. We pray that you will overthrow, oh Lord, his, his constant threats to, to us as a, as a community and as a nation. We have just, um, this, uh, just yesterday remembered the, the birthday of our nation. And it makes us realize that we have in so many ways uh, fallen into rebellion and against you as the one only true God. And We've realized, O oh Lord, that through the years that 
our nation has, has no longer identified as a Christian nation, but, but now seeks to even promote that which is wicked and evil, which is contrary to the Christian faith, to such a point that it has almost become acceptable to be anything but a Christian. And we pray, Lord, that you will intervene again and that you remove wicked men who may be leading us in this direction and women, that they would be convicted and challenged and if it be your will, converted, but if that's not possible at this time or they are unwilling or rebellious, we ask that you would remove them from their place of office and that men and women would be chosen who would lead us not in the way of sin and ungodliness, but in the way of truth and righteousness. Lord, bless your word to us this day. And we pray all these things in the forgiveness of our sins. In the name of our blessed Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Congregation, as we prepare our hearts to hear God's word, we sing from Psalter 67. Psalter 67, and we sing stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4 and 5, all the stanzas, 67.
congregation in response to the sermon we will sing from number 384 it's a psalter selection based on psalm 139 that speaks about the omniscience of the lord that he knows all things in our hearts and that he is the one who examines our hearts in light of his word beloved congregation of our lord jesus christ Modern airplanes have an automatic warning system to warn the pilots of any impending danger. In 1984, there was an Avianica Airlines flight number 11 approaching the airport in Madrid, Spain. And this warning system repeatedly told the crew in English, they were Spanish who were flying, I believe, it said, pull up, pull up. The airplane's terrain warning system had warned them of imminent impact. But the cockpit voice recorder later revealed that the pilot thought that the system was malfunctioning and so he snapped back at it, shut up gringo, and he turned the system off. And a few moments later, the airplane plowed into the side of a mountain, killing 181 people. And this is a perfect illustration of the way many people treat the warnings they receive from their conscience. Therapists and counselors often teach that any sense of guilt or shame or fear from one's own conscience conscience is an error and it's hurtful to their life and, and therefore they should just switch it off. But that could have serious consequences for one's life resulting even in the condemning of one's soul. And how our conscience functions is vitally important for our day-to-day living. And so today, we will have as our theme, the importance of a Christian conscience. We'll look at the description of the Christian conscience, the attacks on the Christian conscience, the molding of the Christian conscience, and lastly, the respect for the Christian conscience. In our reading passage from Romans chapter 2, Paul teaches us that as part of God's general revelation, all of us have been given a conscience. Listen to what he says in verses 14 through 16. He says, when Gentiles who do not have the law, in other words, they do not have the scriptures, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And so our conscience warns us when we do something wrong and it commends us when we do something right. The Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote that the conscience is the soul reflecting upon itself. Put another way, it is the human uh, faculty that judges our actions and our thoughts by the light of the highest standard that we perceive. And like any warning system, it needs to be programmed. It needs to be taught and trained to discern right from wrong if it could be fully effective. John Calvin wrote this. He says, when men have an awareness of divine judgment adjoined to them as witnesses, which does not let them hide their sins, but arraigns them as guilty before the judgment seat, this awareness is called conscience. And so conscience is the faculty that God has given to each one of us, every person who has been made in the image of God. And having a conscience is one of the distinguishing marks between a person and an animal. 
Conscience, you might say, is that personal authority to which we listen or to which, which we ignore. And beginning with Adam and Eve already, God created us and fashioned our hearts to know the difference in some way between right and wrong. You can read about that in Romans 1, verses 18 through 19. But when Adam and Eve sinned, of course, they marred their human nature. And as a result, sin was passed on from one generation to the next. Yet we still have, by God's grace, a conscience. But we recognize that it's been scarred, it's been damaged by sin. But we must also acknowledge that generally still, it is quite trustworthy. At least if we haven't damaged it or seared it, as we'll come to in a few moments. And even without the knowledge of Scripture in our minds, even before sinners are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we often know the difference between right and, and wrong. And our conscience will sometimes scream at us and it will tell us, stop when we're going to do something wrong or we're thinking even in the wrong manner. J.I. Packer he wrote this, he says, An educated, sensitive conscience is God's monitor. It alerts us to the moral quality of what we do or plan to do, forbids lawlessness and irresponsibility, and makes us feel guilt, shame, and fear of the future retribution that it tells us that we deserve when we have allowed ourselves to defy its restraints. And there are several places in the Bible besides Romans 2, which we have read a few moments ago, where the conscience is described. In the Old Testament, it's often referred to as the heart, as that which motivates us in a certain way. And in the New Testament, the word conscience is used on several occasions. In Hebrews 10, verse 22, a passage that's well known to us, the author writes, let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And here he's referring to the consequences of being washed by Christ's cleansing blood so that we have a pure conscience before God. And then in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, we read, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And so the conscience is like physical pain to our bodies. As part of God's general revelation, again, if we, if we touch a hot stove, we will feel pain, won't we? And children, have you ever burned your finger by touching maybe the hot wood stove in the family room? You touch it for a moment and it feels hot and then there is this searing pain and that hurts, doesn't it? Whenever you feel p pain, you, you must say to yourself, something's not right here. And so pain, you might say, is a gift from God. If you lose the ability to feel pain, even in a physical sense, that would be a huge problem, wouldn't it? If you keep ignoring your pain or masking over your pain with, with painkillers, that will eventually lead to a very serious problem, won't it? Pain tells us that something's not right. And it calls us to respond in the right way. All of us know family or friends 
who have ignored or masked their physical pain for years, and later they find out that it was an indication of a very serious problem. And because they ignored it for so many years, their problems have become even the more complex and perhaps incurable. Well, our conscience is the same thing. What a conscience does is tell you that something is wrong. Something is wrong in your spiritual life. That's the parallel you see. Physical pain to our conscience. To ignore the conscience is a huge problem. It could be a huge problem. Now I say could be because our conscience is not always it's, it's, it's not infallible, as we'll see in a few moments, but it's generally trustworthy, and to sin against the conscience is actually sin itself. And so that's a description of it. That's a description of it. But it's being severely attacked in our day, and we consider that in the second place, the attacks on the Christian conscience. Again, J.I. Packer, he says, Satan's strategy is to corrupt, desensitize, and if possible, kill our consciences. The relativism, materialism, narcissism, secularism, and hedonism of today's Western world help him mightily toward his goal. His task is made yet simpler by the way in which the world's moral weakness have been taken into the contemporary church. And Paul writes in Titus 1 verse 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and their conscience are defiled. And this happens because of the devil's attempt to desensitize, to, to destroy our conscience. He could do, us, do so by tempting us to ignore the warnings of our conscience. In Romans 1, run verses 18, and then verse 21, we read of those who have silenced their conscience. We read there in Romans 1, beginning verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven and against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then verse 20, because although they knew God, referring to the knowledge of God in their conscience, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul is saying that, Paul's, that God's wrath is revealed because people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He's, he's referring to those sinners who have hushed their own consciousness. The truth they suppress is an innately known truth about the character of God, about the sense of good and of bad, about the basic knowledge of right and of wrong. And these things are universally to some extent known to all because we read in verse 19, that what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. In other words, God manifests himself to everyone in the whole world in a most basic sense. Within every human conscience, there is this understanding of God. And that's why we have various religions in the world. That's why man is a worshiper. And while man looks for a God to worship, and if he does not worship the true God of heaven and earth, he will create a God in his own mind and his own heart. Because God has made him such, and he knows that there is a God who reigns. And so God manifests himself, but they have silenced their conscience by repeatedly ignoring its warnings. You may know that when Martin Luther was before the Diet of, of Worms, and that's not a, 
It's not a fishing exhibition, as maybe the children think, but it was actually a court, a court in the city of Worms. And he was asked to recant from his statements that he had made concerning justification by faith. And Martin Luther responds in this way. He says, my conscience, and listen how he says this, is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. So Martin Luther understood that repeatedly going against one's own conscience will result in what Paul talks about as the searing of the conscience. And we read about that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, where it says, Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And so Paul speaks of the searing of the conscience. And what he means that is, if you repeatedly ignore the conscience, you you cause it injury. And it will no longer give you warnings. And he's alluding to this idea of burning your skin with a hot iron. And what you do when you burn your skin, children, you know that eventually new skin replaces it and you have scar tissue there. But if you do that repeatedly to the same spot that you continually burn the same spot on your arm, for instance, eventually the scar tissue will be so thick that you actually won't have any feeling there any longer. It grows over the wound, but you do it repeatedly, it becomes numb, and there are no feelings. And the same is true in a spiritual sense. If, If you continually ignore your conscience, you develop scar upon scar, and your conscience then is seared as with a hot iron. And then you begin to believe the lies of the devil. But there are other ways that the devil attacks the the Christian conscience. He, He does so by redefining it, not as the scriptures describe it, but as how society develops it. With the moral revolution of our culture, a different approach to conscience has emerged. We call it a relativistic view. And among the relativists, Values and principles are are simply expressions of the desires and the interest of a given group of people at a particular time in history. And that means there are no absolutes in their mind. And within the relativistic framework, conscience is defined because of the evolutionary process, they say, in which people's subjective inner personalities react to the taboos imposed on them by their society. And, And so there's a psychological way to get yourself off the hook. And so you learn that your conscience, you, you're, you're trained literally not to believe your conscience. And we've got a whole culture today. We've got a whole culture doing it, a whole culture being trained that you should never feel guilty, that you should never feel remorse, that you should never feel pain, that you should never feel shame, that you should never feel fear, that you should never doubt that you're really wonderful, that you're great, that you're terrific, that you're marvelous, and and someone else did something to you, and that's why you're doing the things that you're doing. It can't be your fault because you're basically a good person and you're wonderful, and the conscience is a big liar, you see. Don't listen to it. It's a frightful thing to live in a generation of people who refuse to listen to their conscience. What in the world's going to stop them from, from doing absolutely anything in the end? Have you ever wondered... How someone can enter into a school and, as we hear repeatedly, and randomly kill 
staff and students? And the answer is quite complex, of course, but there's no doubt that they repeatedly ignored their conscience and probably desensitized their conscience by participating perhaps in violent video games and and maybe they were being catechized by ungodly and, and wicked men on the Internet. And so many don't listen to their conscience anymore because it's slammed into silence. And, and then you have people do, doing unconscionable things, more and more unbelievable, bizarre crimes, more and more mass crimes, more immorality, because people are paying no attention anymore to their conscience which God has given to them. You see, the conscience is telling them you, you are a wicked sinner, but psychology is largely telling them you are a wonderful person. And you ought to have self-esteem. And you've been victimized by all this lies about your person and that your conscience is telling you. And then what is more attractive, of course? We're not attracted to guilt. We're, We're attracted to being a victim of our circumstance. Well, we need to guard our conscience and protect it from the pollution of the world. The Lord gave you a conscience to help protect and defend yourself spiritually. And so you've got to protect it and defend it. They are not, we are not to allow our conscience to be shaped and, and, and formed by ungodly advice. And young people in particular, be very careful about listening to ungodly counsel and, and advice. Rather than seeking some random anonymous person on the internet when you face a problem, seek some mature godly Christian in the congregation who then will be able to help you and guide you in the troubles that you face. Don't look for anonymous sources to give you answers to complex life problems. Don't take counsel from the ungodly. Do not sit in the seat of the scornful, but listen to godly counsel. Listen to counsel of mature Christians in your congregation. Because if you subscribe to the world's no-shame, man-centered Standard, your conscience will actually eventually encourage you to sin. And it will become so perverted and so twisted that it makes you think that not only can you lie, but you should be lying, and that it's legitimate, and you can be cheating, and you can be gossiping. And there are many today who think there's nothing wrong with becoming drunk and defrauding people, having sex outside of marriage, living a a self-indulgent, wicked life. And the fastest way... To turn yourself over to the corruption of the world is to adopt its faulty postmodern standard of morality and to pervert your conscience by having yourself catechized by the wickedness of our day, whether that's in chat rooms or, or whether that's in the internet in general or whether that's through television or through the fellowship or the, or the hanging out with friends who are ungodly and wicked. But we must mold our conscience by biblical truth. And that comes to the third point, the molding of the Christian conscience. We need to go back to that illustration at the beginning of this message. When the warning system said to the pilot, pull up, pull up, why did it do that? Well, it had been programmed to do so, didn't it? It had been programmed to receive information, no doubt, from the multitude of radars, perhaps, that, that... shot down to the ground and informed the plane, informed the warning system that they were too close to the ground. It had been programmed to receive this information and it was being inputted and it responded by giving this warning of the impending danger. 
And while we have an innate conscience by God, we also have learned that it can be molded either positively or negatively. Our conscience needs to be properly informed to function properly. Like any warning system, it needs to be programmed, it needs to be taught to discern right from wrong before it can be fully effective. We've already heard that we can abuse it by ignoring it. When it is repeatedly and frequently rejected, it will lose its sensitivity. And we need to be aware of that. It can be turned off even like the pilot turned off the warning system. And that means you need to feed it regularly from the rich truths of the Word of God, establishing His perfect law as the standard for your life. And you do this, don't you, through faithful study of the Word of God by consistently receiving teaching and exhortation from Scripture, by developing godly accountability to shape you and to direct your conscience. And as parents, we have a very important role to fill here in informing the consciences of our children. What kind of influences are we allowing in the lives of our children? Who are you allowing to catechize your children? Because make no mistake about it, all are being catechized. All are being instructed in some way. The question is, in what way? And with what information? Are you allowing the world, through books and movies and chat rooms and, and chat discord and gaming platforms, to mold the consciences of your children? The devil is using, you might say, a Trojan horse of entertainment and, and pleasure to mold the consciences of our children? Or are you placing your children in contexts where they are being taught ungodly and wicked things? Or as godly Christian parents, are you requiring them to participate fully in catechism instruction? Not having them just show up, but ensuring that you take oversight over their work and make sure that it's completed again? Have you enrolled them in Christian schools, not just with the name Christian, but those who truly teach the truths of the Word of God so that they could come to true biblical convictions and their consciences could be molded by godly counsel and instruction and teaching? And are you personally immersing yourself in the understanding and the study of the Word of God? You see, God's Spirit uses the Bible to lead our children through life. And just as Christians grow in knowledge, they mature in Christ. So, as our conscience develops, we become increasingly biblically informed. And the more mature in Christ, the more knowledgeable we become of the truths of the Word of God. And we may develop a strong Christian, biblically informed conscience. And we will no longer be those who, as Paul says, are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. We will mature in the faith. And the areas where we have, we have weakness and where we have wounded our conscience and even damaged it, we reset it, you see, by the Word of God. Because God has been pleased to reveal His truth to us and, and He calls us to master the Word of God that our consciences may be properly informed. And it's very important for Christians to consider this. And why is the conscience so important in the Christian life? You realize that you are confronted with a thousand moment-by-moment -moment decisions every day. 
And how many of them do you think, well, I need to think about this, and I'm going to take it home, and I'm going to study, and I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to seek godly counsel, and I'm going to come to some conclusion about it, and so that I might understand the truth? Well, almost none of them. Because most of the decisions we make, most of the things that we do, are made in an instant. Not reflectively, but instantaneously we make a decision to say something, to do something, to go somewhere, to not go somewhere. We immediately and instantaneously make decisions. Not reflectively, but instinctively. And that means that we must fill our minds and our hearts with the Word of God. Because the conscience is a tool that the Holy Spirit uses to convict us, to bring us to repentance, so that we might again receive the healing of the forgiveness that flows from the Gospel, you see. Now we must recognize that since the fall, our conscience is not infallible. And that's the reason we need to continually feed it upon the Word of God. There are times when it excuses us when we are guilty. Do you ever realize that? There are times it excuses us when we are guilty. And there are actually other times when it accuses us and we may be innocent. And so there, the reality is, is that our conscience is not infallible. And that must mean that we have to be constantly setting our conscience to the Word of God. Our conscience is like the sundial. I don't know if you've ever seen a sundial. They're, they're, if you go to the Blue Heron uh, Reserve, they have a big sundial on the ground there. And you, can, you know that it's only accurate when it's set in the right direction, when it points in the right direction. And if it doesn't, it's going to give you the wrong time. But when it's pointed in the right direction, it will give you the right time. And so it is with our conscience, isn't it? When we have it pointed in the right direction, when it's according to the Scriptures, then we realize that we are listening to the King of kings rather than the Father of lies. Again, Spurgeon says this, he says, oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the Word of God and get that Word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we with the Word of the Lord, not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to reflect on the poetic expressions or the historical facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scriptural models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. He says, I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his and you will see that it's almost like the reading of the Bible itself. He had read it till it filled his own soul. He was saturated with Scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere and his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the Word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. And that leads us to our last point, the importance of the Christian conscience. 
By now you should understand the importance of the conscience for the Christian life. You should never go against your conscience even while being open to the idea that it may be misinformed. You see, there are times when certain cults and, and sadly even some churches have taught certain expressions of practice which are actually, they believe, principles that are binding on all men. What is repeatedly taught, the conscience will mold us in such a way that we might believe something is a sin when it really isn't. That's exactly what happened in Corinth, as we read from 1 Corinthians 8. Paul raises this issue. The issue of eating meat. You see, the conscience is not only developed um, by the scriptures, but it's developed by the culture we live in, the, the, the community we exist in. And sometimes we, we come to conclusions that doing certain things are sin, when in reality they aren't. And that's what happened in Corinth about the eating of meat. There were people there who believed that the eating of meat offered to idols was a sin. And, and Paul says in this chapter, it really makes no difference that it was offered to idols. Now that might even be shocking to us. He says it makes no difference at all because idols are really nothing. They're nothing at all. However, if there's a weaker brother who believes eating meat offered to idols is a sin, he would sin in eating that meat, you see. If we believe something is a sin according to our conscience and, and we do it anyway, that would be sin, even if the act itself is not sinful. And the fact that we have defiled our conscience is a sin. The Bible tells us whatever is not from faith is sin. One commentator put it this way. He says, even though the act in itself is not morally or spiritually wrong, it becomes wrong when it is committed against conscience. A defiled conscience is one that has been ignored or violated. Such a conscience brings confusion, resentment, and feelings of guilt. A person who violates his conscience willingly does what he thinks to be wrong. In his own mind, he has committed sin. And until he fully understands that the act is not sin in God's sight, he should have no part of it. Is that interesting, isn't it? That's the truth, isn't it? If you believe something is a sin and you yet participate in it, you have sinned in doing so, even though it may not actually be a sin. But Paul goes even further, doesn't he? He says that if there's a weaker brother there, we should not eat the meat if we causes our brother to stumble. And that's why he says love should be prominent. It's not wrong to eat meat offered to idols, he said. It's not wrong not to eat it either. And so why would you eat it? if it causes your brother to stumble. Now we have to be careful in, this, in the application of this point for we must be aware that we can never bind, listen carefully, we can never bind anyone else by our issues of conscience unless we can show from the Word of God that it is sin. Well, we can never defile our own conscience. We cannot use our conscience to bind others. But when we know that someone's conscience may be violated by our act, we should exercise our loving care and not participate in that activity if it would lead our brother to sin. And so we need to think very carefully about this. This is a very important point. The Word of God is infallible, and it is the perfect standard of righteousness, and that's the standard that we expect from others. But we should be careful about binding other people's conscience 
by our conscience. Now, this highlights another point about the use of the conscience. Sometimes we hear people say, my conscience is clear. And now this is the biblical way of speaking, isn't it? In Job chapter 27, verse 6, he said, My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? I wish that all of us could make that like Job did. He did so from the heart. He did so in sincerity, didn't he? And Paul says in Acts 23 before the Jewish council, he says, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And so we can make such a declaration, my, my conscience is clear before God. And when we say that, we are saying that as far as we understand it, we are not sinning in any particular manner. But in the end, God is yet our judge. So we must be willing to examine our acts always in consideration of the Word of God. That's why we say our conscience is not infallible. Sometimes the conscience is clear but we are, in fact, guilty. Guilty, aren't we? Another statement people make is when they say, I have an issue of conscience with that decision. When someone uses that statement, they, they are saying their conscience is telling them that pursuing a particular action is sinful. But sometimes we use that statement frivolously. We should be very careful with it. We might, for instance, object we might have a, say we have a, a, an issue of conscience with the church spending money on new carpet because, after all, souls are at stake in the world and, and putting new carpet in the sanctuary is not a very stewardly thing to do. And when we consider eternity and the fact that there are souls to be saved, should we be spending money on carpet in the sanctuary? And a brother will say, I have an issue of conscience with that. But while the argument can be made, and he's free to present it. Understand that this issue of conscience is not binding on others. We should be careful in binding others when there's not clear biblical grounds to our position. Now, much more could be said on this topic. But hopefully this served as an introduction, maybe for something you've never thought about before. Maybe our children have never even considered their conscience and what your conscience is. But as we come to a close, let me end with a few questions. A few questions of application. Do you have a good conscience? Purified by the blood of Christ. The author of Hebrews, after noting the inferiority of the ceremonial law, he says of the blood of Jesus, of how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If you have a guilty conscience rather than a good conscience, a cleansed conscience, then flee to the Lord Jesus for cleansing. If you are convicted of your sin, even at this particular moment, over something you said or something you've done or something that you're participating in or some kind of activity that you've been active in that you know your conscience has been accusing you that you're sinful and therefore you have a guilty conscience before God then flee to Christ for cleansing or has your conscience become distorted in one direction or the other it can go either way can't it has your conscience become oversensitized to the things that are not sin by misinformation and by legalistic teaching perhaps 
How can you correct your conscience? Well, you can correct it by studying the Word of God and applying it to your life and to your heart. And speak with other mature Christians about your issues of conscience and remain open to their teaching, you see. Or maybe your conscience has been seared and hardened because of repeated sin. Sometimes people feel hopeless. I've had people come to me and they feel hopeless because they, they believe they have no conscience left. And it's been compromised by their wicked and ungodly lifestyle. And they think, there is so much wrong with me because I don't feel guilty. I don't ever feel that I do wrong. And I always am doing things, but I have no conviction of conscience about them. Well, obviously, the conscience is still active. Isn't that an amazing blessing of the Lord? It's still active because they are... Their conscience is telling them that there's something wrong, that they have no issues of conscience with their, with their conduct. And so it's still active. And the beauty of the gospel is that there is always hope for as long as we live. You see, if you're living in wicked ways and you have no conviction about them, you're to turn from your wicked way and you're to repent of your sin, and you're to seek the Lord Jesus Christ, not because you feel that it's sin, but because you know that it's sin. The Bible is clear, and it has condemned you because of your sin before God. And you can pray that God would give you a sensitive conscience and that you would be convicted over your sin, but in the meanwhile, confess it because you know that it can lead to your eternal condemnation. But there's hope. Because you can read and study the scriptures and that when you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, turning from your sin and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, then your conscience will be cleansed. You'll be washed in the blood of Jesus that you might live for his glory. In the end, it isn't our conscience that will judge us either positively or negatively, will it? It'll be Christ who sits on the judgment seat. The Apostle Paul appeals to him as his judge in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 5. He notes first that no one can judge him. He notes secondly that his conscience is clear. But in the end, he acknowledges that it's Christ who judges him. And we will close with these words. He says, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts, that each one's praise will come from God. Amen.
Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, it is a trembling thought to know that we are under your searching eye, that you know all things about us, that you know our hearts and the intents of our hearts. You know our thoughts and the desires that we have within. You know the sin that we have committed in our thoughts, in our minds, in our hearts. You know how many times that we have compromised our conscience. You know, O oh Lord, what is true and right. And yet, Lord, you receive us in Christ as your only begotten children. When we think upon this, then we marvel. O oh Lord, we marvel that you, knowing all things concerning us, would yet through faith in Jesus Christ receive us as your own dear children. Lord, that you wash us in his blood, that you look upon us not as those who are under condemnation, but as those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus. And so that even though our conscience repeatedly rises up against us and condemns us, we know that in the end that we shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ not be in, without fear, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this gives us confidence to live our lives, to live our lives in purity and in holiness, seeking to serve you, the living God, giving honor and glory and praise to you. Lord, we pray that you'll continually mold our conscience by your spirit and word, that more and more we would become sensitive to the truth, that more and more we would seek to do what is right, and that we would flee from every appearance of evil. Lord, we pray that you would help us in molding our conscience according to the scriptures that more and more we would be ones who would, as Spurgeon said, be bibline, that we would be so immersed in the Scriptures, so saturated in the Word of God, that we, when we speak and when we act and when we think, would be reflecting, O oh Lord, your thoughts after you, and that we would be living for your glory and the praise of your name. Lord, we pray for those who have a smitten conscience today, those who are overwhelmed with the reality that they have fallen far short of your glory, those who know, O oh Lord, they have sinned grievously against you and are presently living, O oh Lord, perhaps even in hopelessness and despair, we pray that you'll draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would see in him the righteousness they need, and they would flee to him and find refuge in him, repenting of their sin, fleeing from wickedness, and seeking righteousness and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you'll be with each of us in this week and that we would seek to live our lives faithfully and we would respond well to the scriptures and to the pricking of our own conscience, not ignoring it, but seeing it as a blessed gift from you to point out the reality of our brokenness, our fallenness, our need of the Savior. May it never leave us in despair, but may it ever leave us seeking the Lord, serving him with all our hearts and souls and minds. Be with each of us in this coming week and bless this week that it would be a week for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation, you again have the opportunity to give your gifts to God. And after the offering, we will sing from Psalter 24. And we sing all the stanzas.
congregation receive the blessing from the Lord and we sing as our doxology 196. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.